So right before we went live, Logan shows me a glass of Mezcal. I'm like, man, you're doing it right. I don't know why I haven't poured myself a glass of whiskey yet. So while Logan is introducing himself here in a second, I'm going to pour myself a glass of whiskey since we're going to have a fun conversation here about commercial real estate. Logan and I met, gosh, what, a year or two ago now? And uh, instantly connected because he is very similar to me in the sense that he is constantly creating content on commercial real estate and investing, and he's willing to give back uh, to anybody that's willing to listen, which, which I love and obviously gravitate towards because that's what we do here. In 2019, he completed $35 million worth of transactions. He did, gosh, double that in 2020 despite the pandemic, which is ridiculous, I mean, absolutely ridiculous. Um, and this year, he's on his way to $100 million in, in transactions, right? The quest for $100 million, obviously, that is the topic for tonight. Uh, Logan started off as a broker, moved into uh, syndications as one of the co-founders of, of FTW Investments. And uh, like I said, he's got a podcast. He's creating content for you guys. He's, he's unbelievably active on LinkedIn. If you guys are into LinkedIn, go follow him because he's always posting stuff. Logan, that was a brief introduction. But man, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, first and foremost, I got to know what whiskey you're pouring. And secondly, I really appreciate you having me on, Tyler. This is great. And uh, thanks for Thanks for putting this together. In yeah, regards man. to, you know, who I am, you know, I'm a mid Midwestern Jefferson City boy who grew up throwing hay on the back of a, there we go, is that Woodford? Nice. Yeah, a little bit of Woodford. Throwing hay on the back of a trailer, and when I was 14 years old, decided to start trying to put some money in the bank, and the only resources I had to, to me were uh, Dave Ramsey at the time in a per- personal finance, you know, course. Nashville boy, and yeah. it really is, anyways. Um, and I learned a lot from Dave. I, I learned the value of money, but I also watched my mom work two jobs and put us through private Catholic schools and really sacrifice a lot. And it, it reminds me now of success isn't all about what you are willing to do to get there. It's willing. It's what you're willing to give up. And uh, I, I learned that early on. And so I was a collegiate athlete. I got picked up as an undrafted free agent with the Oakland Raiders. And then uh, got cut, went back to school, finished my master's program. Uh, unfortunately, lost my dad through uh, his battle with drugs and alcohol addiction about seven years ago. And that's when my whole life changed, man. I was cut from the NFL. I lost 100 pounds. I was going back to school, working full time. And then my dad passed away. And so it was this whole, you know, I think cosmic situation that created uh, who I am today or who I'm striving to be at least. And uh, real, real estate always interests me, man. I've, I've studied so many people. I've got probably 750 books behind me here, guys. And uh, there's a thread. There's threads that you start uh, realizing. And a lot of them uh, were not tied to their their, uh, their time that they were spending was not tied to their income that they were making. And so that got me really interested. Uh, I think at heart, I'm a lazy guy. And you wouldn't look, you wouldn't see it. on. <laughs> but I want to be able to have the, the flexibility of being a lazy guy sometime. And, and so um, that got me super interested, man. And I, I moved to Kansas City, started working, started buying some real estate, continued to educate myself and network up. And uh, about four years ago is when, um, you know, I was fired from my job. And I had the opportunity at that time to say, look, I think it's time to, to do my own thing. And uh, that's when I went full force into real estate. So that's a little bit about it. That's awesome, man. I think, uh, you know, what you said about about being lazy resonates with me. Because, man, honestly, some of the most successful people I know are also the laziest because they will find a way to get by with doing the least amount of work possible. I've got a buddy who I'm obviously not going to say who it is, but he makes or his team does about a million dollars a year in gross revenue. And he's only got like maybe two employees. Mm -hmm. And I swear he works 30 minutes a day. Yep. Like doesn't work at all. It's and it's amazing, but it's because he's so good at, at creating systems. He systematized right. himself out of his own business, and he just doesn't have to work. I mean, there's you know, there's some serious pros to being lazy. <laughs> yeah, you know, Naval Ravikant is a prime example of this. CEO of Angels List, uh, one of the first investors in multiple uh, big name tech firms now. But you know, he he talks about using leveragers, right? So a guy, a Kansas City guy. Our age, Tyler, put this book together, The Almanac of Naval wow. Ravikant, basically took all of Naval's tweet storms and said, hey, I want to aggregate these and put these together. 
And, you know, Naval and Tim Ferriss are really good buddies. Behind me are all Tim's books that I've read. And he wrote the foreword to this book. And, and this guy was like, look, I just want to put all this stuff in uh, a book. And Naval was like, look, I'm not making any money off this. I'll take a look at it beforehand. And I'm in. And he talks about using leveragers. And there's three types of leveragers. There's financial leveragers. We use that in real estate, obviously, a lot. There's technology. And then there's the oldest type of leveragers, and that's people. And so if you can figure out which one you need to use and which one you need to pour into for your business, that's when your inputs stop being correlated to your outputs. And that's what we call compression. And that's what we're all about, man. So kudos to your buddy. You know, I think that's awesome. If I only work 30 minutes a day or 30 minutes a week, I, I don't know what I would do, but I'd figure it out. Yeah, I mean, you just think about how, like, what is that? What does that even dollar per hour come out to be? It's it's absolutely insane, and I love that for him. Like, it's it's really cool because now he gets to focus, spend most of his time on things that he's passionate about. So it's That's it's right. really cool to just see him see him go do that, um, dude. Talk to us a little bit about going pro. I mean, what was it? What was it like being? I mean, first of all, it's unbelievably intense to be a collegiate football player. My dad did that, so I know what that process is like. But talk to us about you know, doing that in college and then the difference in actually like going pro. You know, I, I never had my sights set on being an NFL football player. You know, I, I thought I was going to be an NBA basketball player. Then I stopped growing from a height standpoint. I haven't stopped growing from a width and, and girth standpoint. <laughs> but, uh, you know, collegiate athletics really made me the man that I am. You know, it, it taught me the, the discipline, the focus, the intentionality, you know, the repetitions, you know, just – you know, get the fundamentals down, all of that stuff. And, you know, I was blessed to, to have a great collegiate career and, and uh, had a good team. We had some great teams. We were Division Two, so not Division One. We were Division Two football team uh, pretty close here in Kansas City. And, uh, you know, I got to see what hard work actually uh, can lead to. And when you get a team working together, how much uh, fun and camaraderie can be created from that. It's just relationships you'll, you'll never forget about. And uh, my senior year, so in, in Division II football, you typically redshirt a year, so you, meaning you practice, but you don't play in games, and actually, you actually get five years. And uh, I, I got my medical or my redshirt pulled my freshman year, and uh, I broke an ankle and tore an MCL, so I got my medical redshirt, uh, and so I got to come back that fifth year. Well, we were midway through the season, and, and scouts started showing up. I still remember the Carolina Panthers coming to Warrensburg, Missouri, and uh, you know. You know, I was going in to, to watch film early like I always did. You know, I had to I had to be faster up here than I was physically. I, I wasn't the most gifted guy physically that there was out there, but I was smart. And uh, my line coach grabbed me beforehand and he said, hey, you know, I, you're not going to have any time to watch film today. You need to go, you know, meet this scout. And I was like, wow. You know, I had no idea he was there to, to see me. And then uh, agents started reaching out to me. And, and you know, I thought I was going to get drafted, which would have been cool. But at the end of the day, that's not what happened. Some guys got uh, uh, at the combine, showed out a little bit better than I did. And from a small school, it's, it's a tough go. And so right after the draft was, was finished, I got a phone call from my agent. My agent was like, hey, we got you a spot. And it's with the Oakland Raiders. And, you know, being a Kansas City Chiefs fan my whole life, I was like, the Oakland Raiders, come on, man. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> right? Well, come on. But whenever they call, you don't say no. And so when I went wow. out there, man, I, I prepared, I was ready, but I had an ego. I had an ego of being the best of the best in Division II. Uh, my stuff didn't stink. And when I got out there, the game started moving fast, and the guys were big, strong, and they were ready to roll. And, uh, you know, there was no camaraderie. You were trying to make a team. You were trying to make a paycheck. And uh, I beat out a couple of the guys they drafted. That's my claim to fame. But I ultimately got cut. And when I got cut, I made a big decision. I said, you know what, I'm done. And in four weeks, I had lost over 35 pounds. And uh, the 49ers, I remember calling me and saying, hey, you know, our center just went down. We want to call you out and, to camp. And if you guys watch Hard Knocks, it was the last cut. So I really just needed to show up. And I said no. And that was one of the most defining moments in my life. Because in that moment, my identity shifted from an athlete to who I was going to become, to the next version of Logan Freeman. And that's where... Uh, the whole light bulb started, and I decided to to go on this journey of trying to create something great outside of athletics. 
Well, good for you, man. I mean, that's that's got to be a tough decision to make. It's, you know, coming from Nashville, it's we have the musicians. It's the people that, it, you know, because it's, it's kind of the same thing, right? It's people pursuing a dream that they've had since they were a little kid. And yeah. it's sometimes people just never give up that dream. They always keep going. And then, you know, it, where does it where does it take them? But some people make that conscious decision of, you know what? I will always love this, but I'm going to get into business and I'm going to devote all of my energy and, and passion into that. And, uh, man, I think, I think athletes can make very scary business owners because yes. they're just so driven. They're team oriented. It's, it's really, I mean, it's the same thing with like military guys, right? I mean, we're, we're looking at, at bringing on, um, a guy with a big military background and I'm fired up about that because mm-hmm. the way that he organizes a team is exactly what we need. So, well, okay. Yeah. Like go Brian, you know, uh, yeah. who I know, you, you know, well, he was in Kansas yeah, Brian's a great guy. Yeah, he was in KC earlier this week, and he was like, "Look, man, whenever I'm hiring people, it, I'm looking for I'm looking for ex athletes. You know, I'm looking for that competitive edge, somebody that's willing to put in the work and, and can stay, uh, you know, stay like this instead of getting into the peaks and valleys all the time." So, yeah. anyways, go ahead. I, I totally understand the, the military piece as well. Yeah, I love that, man. I mean, it's it's so true. Yeah, Brian's Brian's great. I actually had him on the show. He was one of the one of the very early episodes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so talk to us about getting into real estate. I mean, I think uh, if if I'm not mistaken, I think you had a couple of other jobs, obviously before you got into real estate. But so how did you yeah. fall into real estate investing? Oh, you know, I was fired. <laughs> so that's a good I way to do fired, it. I got fired from a six figure sales job, which at the time of being, uh, you know, 25, 26 was was like the pinnacle for me. I was newly married. I was moving on up and, and I really felt good about myself. 15 months into that job, I hated it. Uh, my talent was being stifled. And, uh, you know, a private equity firm came on, bought into the company, and they let all of the salespeople go. And I still think to this day that uh, God was like, hey, you are one of the most stubborn dudes that you will continue to do something, even though you know you shouldn't be doing it. You'll put yourself through hell to get it done. So I'm going to push you out. I'm going to play your hand. And when it happened, uh, I knew it was happening. I brought my own cardboard box in because I had all my sales books there and, and everything like that. And I called my wife and I still remember this conversation. I was like, sweetheart, I, I got fired. She goes, that's okay. I support you hundred percent. Check your email whenever you get home and call me. I was like, okay. She had gone on and started what is now Live Free Investments before I even got home. And the operating agreement and the documents were in my inbox. So That's awesome. having, yeah, man. So having that type of support was incredible. Uh, and, and she's the wind beneath my wings to be cliche, but it's the truth. So, you know, at that time though, I wasn't sold on just doing real estate, man. So I started a sales consulting company and I grabbed Inc's 5,000 fastest growing companies. I called the first 2,200 companies and I landed three clients uh, paying me $250 an hour as a consultant. And that was less than one week that I got fired. And uh, they're like, well, what do you do? I said, well, whatever you need me to do. I was cold calling. I was building CRM systems. I was flying to Orlando, Florida, going to conventions, setting up you know, booths, doing the whole thing. This whole time, I was a licensed real estate agent as, as the head of acquisitions for a $50 million fund doing 10 single family homes a month. Six months in, my wife goes, she's very strategic. She goes, hey, this is, this is really impressive what you've been able to do. But all you do is bitch about this consulting and talk about real estate. Why don't you focus on one of them? And so I dissolved that consulting firm, finished up the fund, sat down with those sponsors. They put the, the word in my ear that I'd never heard before, which was syndication. And I said, that's what I'm going to do. And uh, I, I set out for it. So that's how I got, that's how I got started, man. I love that, man. So I... Um... It's funny. I tell the story all the time. So we both know Bruce Peterson, obviously, mm-hmm. the, you know, the apartment guy. Bruce is, is one of my partners. He's a great guy. He's become a mentor to me. I mean, I met him a few years ago in Austin, and that was where I learned the word syndication. And like, I'll never it's funny that that is such a pivotal moment in, in somebody's career in real estate, because you're like, wait, you're telling me that I can go find deals and put the capital together and I get a portion of it and I get paid to acquire it and I get paid to run it. And the investors love that because you just go make them money. I was like, it, it just blew my mind that that was, that was such a thing. And like, yeah. that's kind of how the world of private equity works. 
That's exactly right. It's a beautiful business model when you think about it. And it's a win-win when you do it right. And so, um, you know, yes, it's hard to get started. It's hard to build that team out, but it, but it should Tough. be. It, it, but it should be, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a little concerned right now in the industry. It really feels like everybody and their brother and mother and sister and cousin and dog want to become a commercial real estate syndicator. And I'm, I'm a little concerned that it's going gonna, it's gonna to turn the wrong way and we're going to have some people that are really left in bad positions. Now, that's a whole other conversation that we could talk about. But at the end of the day, when you think about the mechanics, the fundamentals of real estate syndication, you've got a team. You've got professional expertise in management. You've got financial analysis and expert due diligence. You have the ability to use leverage in the right way. And you can go get an asset that you wouldn't be able to do by yourself. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful business model when done right. Yeah, well, let's let's unpack that a little bit more because we do have a lot of newbies to commercial real estate that that listen to the show, that that watch the the YouTube channel. What is syndication? Syndication is very simply put, pooling resources together to achieve a goal that you would not be able to do by yourself. Think about when you hear a syndicated ra- radio show. Okay, somebody is recording. I was on a radio show earlier today. It's syndicated. A syndicated radio show that's recorded on one one you know FM station or AM station, and then whenever it's it's done, it's picked up, or during it, it's picked up by all of these others. So it's bringing something to the masses that you wouldn't be able to do uh, by yourself. And so in this regard, you're able to pool capital, experience, knowledge, and resources together to go get an asset that you wouldn't be able to do by yourself, and then you get to leverage people's knowledge and experience to do it the right way. So that's kind of how I explain it. I, you know, I think there's more technical terms, but uh, that's, that's the way I look at that. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great way of explaining it. Bruce always says, uh, like, you can syndicate a Snickers bar. I mean, that's, it's great. You can syndicate anything, right? Like, it's just people pulling money together to go accomplish something. You don't even have to make money, really, if you don't want to, but that's not really the point. (laughs) The change happened in 2012 when the Obama administration passed the Jobs Act of 2012. This is what revolutionized the whole industry. And this is when you started to see podcasts pop up in the educational circuit, which is amazing. Uh, But that regulation allowed folks like you and me, real real estate practitioners and operators, to utilize what we're doing right here, digital marketing, social media, to actually find new partners, whether that be owners of property or investors or vendors that that need to to be involved in the transaction. And that's what revolutionized kind of the opportunity to raise capital and and actually do syndication at scale. Will you unpack uh, why that is? Because I'm sure a lot of people do not know the history of syndication. What what happened in 2012 that allowed that? So the Obama administration passed an act, the Jobs Act of 2012, that it was really geared towards startups. So if you remember back in 2012, you know, where were we? Well, we were coming out of, you know, kind of recession and it was a tough time for a lot of people. So to stimulate the economy, the federal government really wanted to make capital available for private equity uh, and backed companies. And so they wanted entrepreneurs to feel comfortable to be able to put a structure together that they could go raise capital. It wouldn't have to be from a VC firm or you know, a shark, they could go pull resources together from friends, family, you know, business people that they knew and use that money to, to raise capital for their own businesses and at scale. What happened is, you know, in real estate, we, we buy these deals with a single purpose entity, usually an LLC or some other uh, type of entity, uh, which is a business. So whereby now investors can buy shares in that business that owns the real estate. So I don't think that uh, the Obama administration really targeted this towards uh, real estate per se, but that's, I feel like, the one of the biggest proponents and success stories of that. Previously, before 2012, you had to know somebody. You had to know somebody that was that was doing these projects, that had ap- the, the appetite of risk that they could go on and, and experience to do these deals, but you literally had to know them. It had to be a pre-existing relationship, and you didn't have access to log on to CrowdStreet or one of the you know, 50 different uh, platforms now to be able to invest. And so uh, it's a beautiful thing because a lot of people have the portfolio just, you know, allocation that they didn't have beforehand. And they don't have to necessarily, if they are accredited investor, know exactly who that person is. They just have to vet the deal, the market out. 
And so there's different types of syndications, as you know, but that's kind of my, my, my take on how 2012 really uh, revolutionized this in- industry. That's awesome. I want to I dive into uh, crowdfunding. Uh, for commercial real estate here in a second. But if you're tuning in live with us, Logan and I are going to be covering everything from finding deals to underwriting deals to funding deals. If you have any questions or any specific topics that you want us to cover when it comes to acquiring, uh, you know, acquiring real estate, building a portfolio, how you go about raising capital, all of that kind of stuff, leave us a comment in the live chat. I'll be sure to ask Logan uh, as we get to that. So you mentioned crowdsourcing. What what is your opinion on crowdsourcing, and have you guys done any projects with it yet? We've talked to a number of these platforms, and I won't name them here, but everybody would probably understand them or, or be recognized if I if I did. And the ability to utilize their platform to raise capital is very attractive for a real estate sponsor. Now, it, you have to realize these people are making money; these platforms are making money. So, uh, how are they making money? Well, there's another layer of fees. There's another layer of their you know, they might be taking more of the project from the general partner and they may be able to, you know, get some better economics when it comes to doing these deals, which is fine for certain projects. Now, uh, what I've seen is you have to have a really long track record, in most cases, 10 years of doing real estate deals, taking a lot of those full cycle and you have to have a lot of assets under management for them to, to get really comfortable with you, which is totally fine. I, I get that. That does not lend towards our business kind of uh, strategy. We're a newer firm. We don't do core and core plus assets typically. They're value add deals. And so I think what you have to understand is, you know, the numbers that they show uh, are going to be the best numbers in, in many cases. There's yeah. really smart people behind these things, you know, like the, the CFO of CrowdStreet, Ian Formigley. I love listening to him. He's a very knowledgeable guy. Uh, but you have to understand that some of those marketed numbers – and, uh, you know, Adam Gower with CrowdStreet uh, can attest to this. He's had all these guys on his podcast. Uh, and there's been a big debate on, you know, if it's a 16 to 18% IRR, which number do you show? Well, these guys are showing an 18 plus one, you know. And so, it, and that's okay. I mean, I think that that's all right because if they do 14, you're still in good shape, you know, in regards right. to uh, doing a deal. But my, my personal opinion of them is, you know, you have to find ones that fit your business model. You know, we have some big firms here in Kansas City that utilize Fundrise and CrowdStreet and some of these other uh, these other players. But it's typically deals that need a little love. And what I mean by that is they may be a development deal. You know, they may be uh, a deal that has a little bit less yield. There may be uh, some hair on the deal that they're going to take care of. But, uh, you know, they're, they're putting it on a platform because they have these reaches of millions and millions of users. And so uh, for me... I still think knowing, being able to call the sponsor, uh, you know, and, and talking to me and the person who's pulling the chains is super important. But there are investors out there, as we have seen with Robinhood and meme stocks, that want to be able to get on an app and they want to be able to invest their dollars. And I'm going to pause right there because I just was talking about this and I, I don't want to go on this rant. But if you <laughs> put your phone up and you can click a button, and invest a, a lot of money. Do you think that that is the best opportunity? I, I just cannot like fathom uh, being able to say, "Well, I'll just watch this webinar and push, you know, on these buttons and see everything that's going on with this offering memorandum and feel good about investing fifty thousand dollars." I guess there's people that do, and that's that's fine. They want that experience. They want the app. They want the tech. Uh, but you know, I'm a little bit of a good old boy when it comes to knowing who I'm investing with, knowing who I'm doing business with. And, uh, there's something to be said to be able to call somebody, shake somebody's hand and, and, uh, you know, have a little bit of a trust factor. So that's my, that's my, my high level take. I think that it's fun to watch. I think every sponsor like Bruce and myself and you, we're going to have to utilize technology at some point, but I think the tech stands in the way of building a relationship with the people who actually control the deals. And at the end of the day, that's just not how I've thought about this business or how I wanted to grow it. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. So we actually had our first experience this year with something similar. So we've traditionally done 506B uh, offerings, right? So a 506B offering is a, there's two different offerings if you're gonna do a syndication. There's 506B and 506C. 
And 506B is a friends and family raise where you can have up to, I believe it's 35 unaccredited investors in your offering, right. which is, you know, people who are, who have less of a net worth than a million dollars, or they're making less than like 200,000 a year, which is a lot of people, right? Like it's friends and family. Uh, the great thing about that raise is you can go out to just about anybody that you have a pre-existing relationship with. Now, yeah. how do you, you know, the, the gray area is how do you define a pre-existing relationship? Well, if anything ever happens with the SEC, you have to be able to show that you knew this person before you brought the deal to them in some way, whether that's phone calls or coffee or you were friends for 30 years, whatever. We did our first 506C thinking, hey, because we're, we're doing a $50 million development deal. And figured, hey, you know what? Let's try doing a 506C because we'll be able to market it. That's one thing you can't do in a 506B. A 506B, you are not allowed to market it to the public. 506C, you can only take on accredited investors, but you can market it in any way that you want. Well, so we thought, well, hey, you know, we'll be able to just go market this on Facebook, Instagram, Google. I mean, you know, what, you, know you name it. We'll be able yeah. to do it and blow it out. And we got some amazing feedback, but what we found was the majority of people that ended up investing were friends and family mm -hmm. already. So all that we ended up doing was kind of hamstringing ourselves because how are you going to go out to somebody that you've never met before, that has never seen you before, they don't know your track record, and convince them to give you $100,000 as an investment? That's not easy to do. And when you're on a timeline to close on a deal, I mean, damn. So I agree. I mean, the fact that people are doing $50,000 investments through CrowdStreet, just pressing buttons is remarkable to me. It is. Now, they're banking on the fact that CrowdStreet or the platform has obviously done their due diligence on the, the sponsors. Uh, that being said, there's so many different platforms now that have so many different deals. Now you are competing against every other project out there. And how do you, yeah. how does, CrowdStreet, how does the platform say, well, you know, uh, this is a success rate and this and that, but uh, which one are you actually promoting? If I pay you more, does my deal show up in more apps? In more, I just, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I, I'm not uh, really privy to that. I have a similar story, though. We've only done one 506C. It was for a $750,000 raise. I've raised $7.6 with a 506B, by the way. And that, that 506C was the hardest raise we have ever done. Now, yeah. we're selling an asset, and it's an 82% IRR, so it turned out to be great. However, uh, trying to make sure that everybody on that deal was accredited, uh, I knew every single person. I just hamstrung myself. I mean, yeah. every person that invested in that deal uh, was a pre-existing relationship, and I could have just done a 506B and been done three weeks before. But uh, So I think it has its place. It has its uh, it has its meaning out there in the marketplace, but uh, just because you can market it, just because it's uh, you you can blast it to the masses, doesn't mean it's going to attract the you know the dollars. You know what does is doing this right here, so people can get to know who you are and everything that you do, Tyler, on a regular basis with your social media and educational platform. I've emailed you multiple times saying, man, that blog. I mean, you go deep in your blog articles, bro. Like. Uh, if anybody wants some good content, I mean, this guy, is, he's doing it. And uh, <laughs> I'm learning from it. I, I'm just like, man, I, I never thought about it that way. And just reading those articles and watching the videos, one, I love good production. And two, uh, you know, whenever I can tell somebody's really put some time into something and it's well thought out, I just really respect that. And that's what builds those relationships, in my opinion. And so um, I'm okay doing this a little slower. I'm okay you know, building over time. I don't need to go get, you know, $100 million of equity from people that I don't know and put them into deals and then they start calling me and that's just not my business model. And there's plenty of other people that are okay doing that, but you better have a track record of, of major success and know how to deal with that type of pressure. Because uh, when somebody writes you a 50, $100 million check, $10 million check, $1 million check, is a different relationship than uh, when somebody invests $25,000 in 20 years. It is. You, you get a job. That's, I mean, that's kind of what happens, whether that's official or unofficial. I mean, you, when somebody writes a check that big for you, you're basically, you're basically working for them. Uh, Patrick is jumping into the live chat with, uh, asking with syndication, what comes first, the investor capital or the deal and why? 
I'm going to say both. And I'll actually answer, <laughs> I'll actually answer your question in some Patrick. But let, let me have a little fun with this first. So when I got first started, uh, you know, I, I ask myself this all the time. It, is what comes first, the deal or the investment? And uh, it's the old chicken in the egg kind of scenario. And you never know where to start. What I will tell you is take stock of what you have available to you. And what every single person has available to them is the opportunity to start brand building, to do what we're doing right now, to getting content out there, to connecting with as many people as possible. Every Tuesday and Thursday, I have between 10 and 12 phone calls, 15 minutes, backed up to backed up. And I've done that for five years straight, building relationships with people, pouring into people, not asking what I could take, but what I could give and just trying to do the best that I could and learn from every single individual. That has now created an investor base of over 650 people. But it takes that time. It's a good number. It takes, yeah, it takes, that, it takes that know-how to just try to give back instead of taking. So that being said, I would say take stock of what you can, uh, you know, what you have available to you. In today's market, a deal, and I, this might be contrarian, but a good deal will attract dollars. You just have to be willing to give up enough of your deal to get it done. Because you, you can listen to a podcast. You can get onto one of the, the 15 different mastermind groups, make some phone calls and say, hey, man, I got this smoking deal, 150-unit apartment complex, commercial deal, whatever it is. I just don't have the, the relationships and experience to get this thing over the finish line. But I'm willing to give up a part of that deal to learn from you and to be a part of your network. Three guys have done that successfully with me, and they are off doing their own deals and have 50 to $75 million of assets under management. They got started from one LinkedIn message. They came to Kansas City. We started as LPs, moved to some co-GPs, and now they're off there doing their own deals. So uh, I think the answer is both. You always want to be brand building. But right now in today's market, if you've got a true hot deal, you will be able to go find the people to bring into that project. I would not recommend putting a $50 million deal like Tyler did under contract and trying to go get the equity in 30 days. You, your hair will fall out and you will never do another deal. So you don't want to do that. Uh, you know, so I, I think that that's what I would say to that. Um, both is the answer. But in today's market, if you can find a deal, you've got something, you will, you will be able to get your, your, your career started off of that. And use that one deal to catapult you, you know. But you have to be humble. Uh, and you also have to be willing to partner with somebody that can help you get the deal done. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, uh, you know, for your first deal, I mean, look, I, 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 I was in commercial real estate for five years before I decided to, to put together my first deal. And over that five years, people got to know me. They got to see how I operated. They got to see how I worked. So it's kind of that, like, I was not really raising capital, but I was raising capital because it's all about who you are, what your personality is, and what kind of person you are. And people want to see a track record. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a track record in the, hey, here's all the successful investments I've done. It could be, hey, I've been a broker for five years, and here's what I've helped people do, and here's how I underwrite deals, and here's how I've pitched these deals to other investors to – you know, and here's my successful track record as a broker, you know, yes. follow up with your clients, figure out how successful their deals ended up being. So, <laughs> yeah, I would agree that, um, you know, the, the money will come to a good deal. The, the tough part about that, though, is that capital raises are never, ever easy. They're never easy. It's, it's the most stressful part of the deal. We're going through one right now for a hotel that I'm doing in Nashville. And it's, I mean, look, we're, we released it like last Friday and we're, we're about 50% committed on the capital already, but it's still, it's like, oh my gosh, we still have to get all the funding in. We've got to go talk to everybody. You know, I mean, it's just, it's, and we've got all this momentum and we all feel really good about the capital raise. I'm still like stressed about it. So the capital is always the, the toughest part, in my opinion. Yeah, um, I, would, I would agree with you. I, I mean, if I could just piggyback on that really quickly. Yeah. I mean, it Jump is so... It. It is so difficult to raise capital. And that's what I was trying to hint at with, if you have never done it before, do not go put a big deal under contract and try to see if you can get the thing done. Uh, what I would be doing is be building relationships with guys that have networks that want to put their capital to work and be building those relationships. Go find a deal and bring it to them and get that experience done. I mean, I think that's the easiest way to get started 
in this business is go hunt down a deal, knock on the doors, find one, and then be building relationships with those guys that can fund three, five, ten million dollars in a month and learn that process from them. And also put yourself through the process of saying, hey, I'm going to go through this the same capital raising process because every single capital raise I've done, whether it be $250,000 or $7.6 million, has never been easy. There has always been something that has come up. You've got legal docs. You've got uh, the portal. You've got phone calls. It, it creates so much more work, uh, and, and it's a part of the business. But you get better. You start to systemize it. You start to streamline it a little bit, uh, and, and you can get better at it, but it's not easy. I, I didn't want to make – and make it seem like I'm over here, you know, growing money on trees. That's definitely not it. Um, but if you say who you, you, you know, say that you're going to do something and you actually do it and you continue to follow up, people start talking about you. This is a lot smaller world than you think, especially in the commercial real estate world. I mean, I was just with Brian, who I had no idea you guys even knew each other. He's in Kansas City. I mentioned your name and he's like, oh, yeah, Tyler and I, we, we've been we've been hanging out for, for a couple of years now. So it just – you just never know who knows who and who can cap- catapult to the next level. Yeah, it's 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 very true. I mean, I look every, every capital raise that we do gets easier, uh, just because. I mean, so like t- for example, we had investor site tours at this hotel that we're doing, and several of the people that came brought friends with them that didn't right. know us. We did not. I mean, obviously they they could not invest in the deal because it's a five hundred six B offering. And, uh, but they wanted them to get, start getting to know us so that they can start investing in the next deals that we have. So, you know, yeah. take care of your investors because they will become your, your secondary sales force. Um, I think that's, I think that's super important. We've got a question from Danielle. Are any of your deals funded with TIFs? Uh, for anybody that doesn't know what a TIF is, that is tax increment financing. Okay. You know, we have not done any, uh, TIFs up to this point. We did one redevelopment project of a neighborhood retail shopping center where we got some new market tax credits. And, um, but, but I believe, you know, Tyler, you probably are more uh, open to this and and aware of this, but I believe a TIF is where, you know, uh, you're getting some funding on every single dollar that you have in regards to the sales for the, the tenants that might be in your building. And maybe that's incorrect, but I haven't done a lot of the TIF work. I'm mostly in the multifamily space, not sure if a TIF really, uh, even applies to that. What we do is a lot of tax abatement work. Uh, we do, um, you know, some work in, in opportunity zones and, and uh, historical, re, you know, readaptive use projects that are, that give us, you know, historical tax credits, but uh, no tips. So I can't really, I can't really speak to that much, Tyler. Maybe, maybe you can a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, tips are tips are more utilized in development or redevelopment um, because what it what essentially what it, it does is. Uh, the, you'll get credits basically from the government to freeze your property taxes where they are so that you can come in create something that's significantly more valuable, but you're also yeah. adding to public infrastructure or you're creating something that the city wants or needs or whatever, and they're willing to reward you for that. So they freeze your taxes for a certain number of years. Um, it's it's honestly really complex. Every time that we do them, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I'm an expert on tax increment financing. I don't really want to be. We bring consultants in to handle all of that for us um, on our behalf because they do it all the time. Um, we are exploring TIFs right now on a development project that I'm doing. We just acquired a 32-acre shopping center in Madison. So, you know, that is going to be a 300 to $500 million redevelopment, and we are going to need some TIF money to pull that off because we're going to be adding a lot of infrastructure uh, to the city, including potentially a, a transit station for bus rapid transit. So, you know, typically, um, I mean, TIF is, TIF is very interesting to us. Obviously, there's a lot of value in that, um, but it does come with a trade-off, right? I mean, you're still spending the money on the front end to hope to recapture it on the back end. Um, but, you know, it, it, with commercial real estate values being based on cap rates, that ends up actually working out pretty well to a certain extent, depending on how long the the abatement is. So, yeah, not a not a deep dive into tiffs by any means, but there, you know, we can we can certainly scratch the surface for y'all. Um, yeah, Logan, okay. let's talk about. Yeah, go I ahead. Think in there, Tyler, is just that this world. There's there's third parties out there that are are experts, and you can utilize them 
uh, in yeah. any fashion, just like our property and condition assessments, just like when we do historical tax uh, credit programs, uh, projects here in Kansas City. I mean, there's opportunity to learn that stuff, but I wouldn't say under being an expert in historical tax credits is like uh, a big you know, proponent of my business. Knowing the lady, and I can tell you her name, Elizabeth Rosen, who is the expert, being able to call her and be on a first name basis is. So it is a relationship business, just like you bring in experts, we do the same thing. Yeah, exactly. I, I highly recommend that. Don't spend the time to try and figure that out because, I mean, unless you're planning on doing TIFFs for every single project you ever do, right? Because right. it's, it's worth it to just pay a consultant to come in and help you with that. So, Logan, how do you go about finding your deals? I mean, that's that seems to be one of the biggest questions. Like, I can't even, or, or not biggest questions, biggest complaints that people will give. Like, I can't find any deals. And that's yeah. not true. Yeah. Well, my first question is, is well, what are you doing to, to, to find deals? Well, I'm talking to brokers and I'm, I'm you know, driving around. Well, that's not that's not what it takes. I mean, you, you have to do what other people are not uh, doing to find projects. So with that being said, uh, a, a guy down in Florida, Bo Beery, wrote an incredible book, uh, elite multifamily uh, investor book. Uh, it can be utilized for, for other asset classes as well. He lays out a pretty programmatic uh, schedule of how to how to build relationships with brokers and, and be able to find deals all, all the time. What I would say for me, being a real estate broker, being involved in the investment sales committee, uh, community here in Kansas City, uh, doing brokerage for four years and those relationships I've built. The one thing that I would say brings me more more projects and more deals and more opportunities is twofold. But the first one is listening. I listen to what people say and then I'm not afraid to ask. Meaning, hey, have you ever invested in commercial real estate? You would not believe how many people uh, would be would say, hey, well, actually, I'm in that new redevelopment project down at the crossroads of the, the hotel, you know, the crossroads hotel, and, and I'm, I'm this, this, and this, and I've been doing this for that long. You would never believe how many people would tell you that, which then leads to a new thread that says, well, who do you work with with that? And then you find an opportunity. I find projects, I, I find new deals at church. I find new deals at the nonprofit I volunteer for. I find new deals at the grocery store because I'm always telling people, what I do. And they're always interested. Nobody ever says, man, I don't want to talk about real estate. It's always, hey, man, did you see that house over on the corner, you know, sell for this, this and this. And, and I, I'm thinking about selling my house, but I don't know where to, I don't know where to move. You know, it's not a topic that people really shy away from. They want to talk about it. It's exciting for them. It's a tangible asset. They live in a house. They live in an apartment, that type of stuff. So I'm telling people what I do all the time. Secondly, I've gotten really intentional about our, our direct uh, response and direct outreach to property owners. So when we have a project, either that we own already or we have closed on uh, or just recently, we then send, we aggregate a list, we then send mailers three times to property owners, the property management company, and the owner's address if we can find it. We've got ringless voicemail going. We've got text messages going. We've got automated emails going. We've got brokerage uh, meetups every single month going on. I've got five or six brokers that I'm meeting with on a bi-weekly basis, either playing golf with, having a drink with, hosting a happy hour, and just and just kind of shooting the crap with them. And so I'm always out there beating the bush. Now, I'm not I'm not the only guy doing this. I have a full-time acquisitions guy. I have two principals that have relationships with vendors like bankers and property managers and contractors that are always bringing us projects as well. But I think the first thing would be is you have to take some sort of ownership of it. And there's plenty of books and, and I think there's plenty of uh, research done on the best way to find kind of these off-market deals. But you got to be willing to pick up the phone and, and get uncomfortable and meet people and uh, kind of put yourself out there. And the best deals, I think, in my opinion, this is from a broker, by the way, is either a deal that a broker did not list anywhere or uh, with a direct relationship with a seller that owns that asset. I mean, don't get me wrong. We've bought listed deals. I love taking a stab at stale deals and bringing them back to life. It's actually one of my favorite things to do, to see a deal that's been on the market for nine months. I offered on it in the first two weeks that it was there, said, hey, this is what it's worth. Nine months later, I come back around and buy it for that exact number because it should be technically worth more, right? And I'm still paying the same price back then. Uh, and I can kind of say, hey, you know, we, we know what we're doing when it comes to, to valuation. 
there's not one thing that I would say I can uh, that brings us deals, but there is you know five or six that we do on a regular basis, very intentionally, that creates a magnetic pull to our organization. And so when you can get away from prospecting all of the time because you've positioned yourself as somebody that will get deals done, and the way that you do that is, is thought leadership and building relationships, it gets so much easier. But it's like the 10,000-hour rule. you got you got to work through it, man. It's not fun. And that's why this industry eats up a lot of people and spits them out for breakfast because people aren't willing to say, hey, I just want to send an email. I just want to send a ringless voicemail or a text message. You know what? I mean, that gets them warmed up, but it takes 8 to 12 touches to get somebody on the phone and actually talk to them. And so for me, it's, you know, let me get all those touches out there. And then when the time is right, I'm swooping in and making sure that the person understands uh, why they should either sell to us or, or bring us a, a project. So, I mean, it's, it's an ongoing basis. It is a full-time job for multiple people yeah. in our business that is keeping that pipeline full. And it's not something that I would say uh, can be done just kind of willy-nilly. And I think you could probably attest to this, too. I mean, it, it, it's a lot of work. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of what I specialize in on the team is going out and finding the deals and, and putting the overall project together. And then I've got an underwriting team and a research team and analysts and, uh, and a project management team and all that kind of stuff because I actually enjoy going out and hunting the deals. I've never had the problem with deal sourcing. Um, and I can underwrite and I can do all that kind of stuff myself. But at some point, you've got to figure out, okay, well, what am I best at? And just pick it. I like what you said about having multiple streams or multiple different ways of finding these deals. It's just like having multiple streams of income. Right, like it's going to be really tough for you to become a millionaire if you don't have multiple streams of income, uh, or to, to to live free, right? To to live without, um, you know, to live on your passive investments and all that kind of stuff. You you just yeah, you have to get to that point. So yeah, once you, but it's it's just not. I mean, it yeah. takes time, and when you get experience under your belt, you'll start to see opportunity where it wasn't there before for you. Sales, in my opinion, is manufacturing opportunity out of thin air. And when you can get to that point, when you can start to see something and say, holy cow, actually, this is what it should be. And we should call this person and this person and this person. And now there's a deal. Well, beforehand, there was just a pro forma and an offering memorandum. But that's just that's just, you know, that's just product. There was no deal to be had there until you brought something strategic and kind of synthesized these these things together to create that. And it just takes time to understand that. And that's why you focus on that, Tyler, because that's the highest value task, man. I mean, is, is being able to see that because not everybody can. Exactly. And, and I love it. Right. I mean, it's, uh, once you, once you, I mean, hell, I've been doing it for eight years now. Right. So for me, it's very easy. It's the, I get to go out and hunt and I'm kind of by myself doing that, you know, the business development side of things. I, I, I just really love that. Yeah. So what, what kind of deals are you into? Like, what, what is your group looking at? I mean, obviously, you've got a background in multifamily. Have you branched out of that? We have. You know, we've done two hospitality deals uh, here in Kansas City uh, that we own and, and operate. The hotels are smaller properties, boutique bed and breakfast hotels on the Country Club Plaza. Uh, we have some neighborhood retail shopping centers. I love that asset class. I mean, they actually performed very well during COVID-19. Uh, here in Kansas City. So uh, I'm definitely excited about trying to get some more of those assets under my belt. I uh, definitely have not gotten the investor sentiment to be there where I would like it to be. Everybody's like, you know, the Amazon effect and everything. I'm like, yeah, but you got to realize that, you know, 80%, I don't know what the percentage is. You probably know this, but people still go into stores, man. They're still oh, going yeah. into stores. They're going to eight hardware stores. They're going to get their tires. They're going to get their hair cut all that stuff, you know? So at the end of the day, we, we love retail. Uh, I'm getting into some office deals, believe it or not. FTW is, that's my company is, is growing into a lot more space. So we're buying the office building and we've got some other tenants that we're putting together as well. Um, and then we've done some mixed use assets. So think about retail on the, on the kind of the, the main level. And then we do either short-term rentals or multifamily up top. Uh, and I'm, I'm very close on a few self-storage projects, but, man, that's a heated spot as well. So at the end of the day, it's Class C. Workforce housing is our, our bread and butter. I mean, we're up to about 1,100 units here in Kansas City now doing our first deal outside of KC uh, very soon, which I'm excited about. And I think we'll continue to do that. But 
Um, there's a lot of opportunity here with the path of progress with the streetcar that's allowing us to look at old buildings and the tax credits like I was talking about earlier. Uh, the multifamily deals are now available to scale um, and, and actually get to, to scoring and get those tax credits that they were not able to beforehand. So having somebody in your local jurisdiction that knows all those things that are going on is so important because deals that we were looking at two years ago that wouldn't score right for the historical tax credits, they do now. And that's very exciting. So uh, that's a little bit about what we're, we're into, but it's, it's mostly multifamily, but highly excited about retail and, and doing some office deals here very soon. That's really cool, man. I mean, you're, you're really branching out. I, uh, we're going to have to get you out into Nashville, get you doing some projects oh, out oh, here. There's a ton man, of opportunity. I, I tell you what, man, um, Nashville is on my, my radar. I want to get down to Nashville uh, and see you, obviously, and spend some time yeah. looking at your guys' projects. But uh, now that we can travel and, and, and do all that good stuff, man, I, and we get into Nebraska is where we're going first. Nashville, Tennessee would be one that I would love to get into, Oklahoma, uh, and then uh, Des Moines, Iowa as well, uh, are all cities that are right on our radar. I can drive to Nashville and I don't yeah. know, I think it's like nine hours or so. It's not that far. Yeah, it's not too bad. Um, okay, so so once you've found a deal, how do you evaluate it? I mean, you know, do you have guys in your team? Do you do that personally? What does that process look like? Yeah, it's changed over time uh, because – uh, you know, we've, we've had to increase the deal velocity uh, about 25 to 50 percent uh, due to, you know, COVID-19 being you know, over, uh, whatever you want to call that. There's been a lot more investor sentiment and the competition has definitely picked up here in Kansas City. That being said, uh, we hired a, a full-time acquisitions associate that focuses on uh, direct-to-seller uh, deals. And then we are making sure that we underwrite every single deal that comes on the market here city we know we're going to be off you know 90 percent of the time and have no opportunity to get those deals but what it does is allows us to build a relationship and those brokers know that we are going to give them an offer and they know where we stand so when they, when they do have a project uh, that fits our criteria it's going to fit uh, i have an intern that's doing a, a lot of analysis for us as well um, but we have a full-time acquisitions guy that's focused on uh, doing that and whenever we uh, every week we have what we call investment committee. So it's his job to present three to four new projects a week. And we decide in that meeting what the LOI is going to be. And then we get it drafted and we get it sent. So trying to turn out the LOI velocity uh, and that KPI in our business has been really important. It's taken about 65 or 70 uh, LOIs right now to get to a deal, which seems wow. crazy, but I, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, man. I mean, and that's three hours a deal probably. So you, you can put the math there. I mean, it's, it's a lot of work to find those opportunities. Uh, and so whenever they do come, we want to make sure we're capitalizing on them. But, you know, we're not changing our underwriting. And that's important because our underwriting is what got us to where we are now and not missing a distribution over the last 15 months, over 1,000 units. And I don't plan to miss a distribution. And so you've got to stick to that. And so you've got to change other variables in your, in your business. So after investment committee, the LOI goes out. And that's a two-hour meeting every single week. We also have a deal roundup meeting every Thursday uh, for 45 minutes to tie up any loose ends. So we've got four, three to four hours a week just talking about deals where the principals, our acquisitions team, and our director of operations are all in the same room uh, working towards you know putting these deals under contract. So um, that's kind of how our process goes. In, in relation to underwriting, man, that's not my strong suit, uh, mostly because I haven't wanted it to be. Uh, you know, I'm a relationship guy. I like doing this type of stuff. I've got a partner that you know builds Excel models from scratch and can do calculus in his head, and he's done real estate development for the last eight years, and he loves geeking out with making Excel do what he wants it to do. I do yeah. not geek out. I, I just don't. It's just not something that excites me. Uh, and so having that on the team is is really really important. So uh, he's built a really robust model that allows our acquisitions guy to get through a deal really quickly, and then if it hits some of the metrics that we like to see, then he presents it to us in the investment committee and we are tearing it apart. We do what's called red team, green team, where half of us will be advocating for the deal. Half of us, half of us will be, you know, uh, advocating against the deal. And we have a nice fun uh, debate, uh, typically over uh, a little bit of mezcal or, or good whiskey. Well. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that idea. I'm going to have to uh, to propose that to the team, red team, green team. That's really cool. 
Um, we've got two questions. I'm going to ask Joshua's first, even though his came in second, because it's on topic. With so he's asking, how do you analyze your deals? Obviously, you just you just answered that. Do you yeah. guys pay for any software? So you kind of answered that as well. I mean, your guy builds his own spreadsheets. Have you ever bought software from anybody else? Okay, so we utilize a lot of software from a data analytics standpoint. So we've got CoStar, we've got Yardi, we've got, uh, I think we had Rentometer for a while just to kind of do another third party. But those, those two subscriptions are not cheap. Uh, and there's a lot of data to be had in those. So those are the softwares that we kind of subscribe to. In regards to our CRM system, we have a CRM for all the property owners, for all the brokers. We have a syndication uh, portal. We use Syndication Pro, which is an investor portal that allows us to, to have all of our investors in one location. They can go review the deals, subscribe to the deals, and now distributions are also sent through uh, that portal. It makes it look very professional. And was and it's a the, life changer. It is a life changer. Oh, my man. gosh. So that was incredible. We made that big change about I don't know, 18 months ago. And uh, I think we were one of Syndication Pro's first clients and Jacob Black is doing a great job over there, growing like wildfire. Uh, so we use those types of softwares. In relation to underwriting, yeah, I mean, I've used you know spreadsheets in the past from Michael Blanc or other people that I have found in the multifamily space. But uh, having a guy like Parker on our team, you know, underwriting an office deal is a lot different than underwriting a multifamily deal. And you gotta be able to forecast what the leasing uh, you know, commissions are going to be. What's the TILC that you're going to need to have in the deal? And you need to be able to to show that very, very you know easily in those models. So we have a model now for self storage, for for multifamily, and for office, and then one for retail as well. Uh, and we continue to refine those, especially with the ability to to look at a three, five, seven, and ten year uh, horizon on every single project with the kind of competitive climate that we're in right now, and a lot of people really worried about where interest rates may or may not go, uh, we started to look at three-year holds where investors you know, are really funding kind of a flip. I mean, it's not a house flip, but I mean, I, I'm flipping you know, 75 units right now that we've held for 19 months. I consider that kind of a flip. You know, yeah. I mean, we went in there for- That's a short-term hold. That's a short-term hold, and our investors are stoked about it. Um, and so if that sentiment continues to reign true, then being able to put, a, put the inputs in the model and being able to have an output that has three, five, seven, and 10 years all right next to each other. I mean, man, you don't have to build four or five models. You can make that decision right then and there, and you can change some of the assumptions that you're making and see what the best option is for the business plan. So, um, you know, I think that's kind of uh, the, the software that I would use on a, on a regular basis when it comes to this. The number one software that we use in our business that, uh, well, there's two, uh, that have really streamlined is Slack and Monday. So these are two things that have elevated my game uh, and ability to, to be productive and stay efficient while being effective is so important. I mean, Monday is a, a task management software, but also a project management uh, software that can share through Teams and you can see where everything is and, and it sends you emails. It actually integrates with Slack. So I've got like 50 different Slack channels that, that are for every single deal, for marketing, for investor relations. I mean, not getting off of text message, getting off of email, and being able to have that has been a game changer with communication for our organization. So uh, those are the two things that I would say outside of kind of real estate per se uh, that have really helped us scale up. Yeah, that's it, having the right software on your side is a big deal. I mean, it, it can replace entire positions that you would otherwise be hiring for. Joshua, I would say, too, um, I've got a link in the description below to our underwriting software. We do put spreadsheets together that we use on all of our deals that we sell. Uh, and every Wednesday at 5.30 p.m. Central Standard Time, Andy, who's my asset manager, my analyst on my team and I, we are live underwriting projects showing you guys how we go through that whole process. So if you go to the channel um, and you go over to, I think we have an underwriting playlist, um, you can find some more information on that there. Uh, this next one is from Patrick. Uh, with the Amazon effect, do you how do you see commercial real estate transitioning moving forward? Yeah, well, this is a fun one for me because you know, I mean, I think there's second order thinking that you have to think about. So I'm a big Charlie Munger guy. I'm a big mental models guy. So you know, thinking through the question behind the question, and then what if you answer the question, what are the actual effects, the after effects of the answer of that question? And that's what economists do on a regular basis. It's a lot of fun for me to 
to think through all that stuff. Second order thinking, meaning if I answer the question one way, then there's going to be five or six other questions that, that come up and things that I got to think about. The Amazon effect is very interesting to me. One, because it is creating new jobs, believe it or not. I know that they say they're killing a lot of jobs and maybe they are, but I've got a deal, 162 units right next door to my deal is 262 acres. 2.6 million square feet of light manufacturing and warehousing that is going to be done. And I guarantee you, uh, North Point, which is one of the top industrial brokers in the in the country, it's a Kansas City-based company, is probably going to put Amazon in one of those buildings over there. And that's creating over 2,000 jobs that is going to fuel the economy right there. So I think there's there's the first order effect, which you would say is, well, it's going to kill retail. Well, you know, there's a big debate to, to be had on that front. There are people, what we learned in COVID-19, and that's, this is in Kansas City, Midwest, you know, Midwest kind of town, is people still want to get out and they still want to go to places. They still want to work in offices, believe it or not, and they want to go see people and they, they like going shopping. Uh, ask my wife that. She loves going shopping. So uh, at the end of the day, man, I think the first order effects would be with Amazon continuing to grow, how does that affect the macroeconomic climate from a job standpoint? And is that going to affect shopping uh, on an ongoing basis? Yes, for a lot of different sectors, but no from an experimental standpoint and for certain type of industries. That being second, the said, the second order effect or the second level thinking from that question would, would say this, with Amazon continuing to grow and needing uh, last minute delivery or places for them to, to store their stuff to get Amazon Prime packages from A to B quickly, that's going to create even more opportunity for real estate developers to buy old malls, to develop them into light warehousing uh, and maybe, you know, in, in other types of organizations or, or places for, for real estate developers to have an opportunity in, which is then going to create jobs. So I, I think there's a lot of, of going forward uh, in, the, in regards to commercial real estate. Some industries, in my opinion, and some old type of uh, businesses uh, that have not continue to innovate uh, that probably were on the way out are going to just get exacerbated and they are just going to be be gone faster. Uh, example being in Jefferson City, the mall. I'm watching the mall completely change over there. We see we saw a government office move into a, a big portion of the mall in Jefferson City instead of it being, it was Sears beforehand. So if Sears isn't going to be able to stay innovative and, and, and create value for their customers, then they probably will be extinct at some point but that's gonna create an opportunity for somebody else to come in and create value. Peter Malouk, the CEO of, and founder of, of Creative Planning here in Kansas City, one of the largest uh, wealth firms in the country, he says the best antidote for high prices is high prices, meaning whenever there's an opportunity for somebody to come in, undercut and create more value in an innovative way, the, the, the invisible hand of the market will create that opportunity. So I, I don't know if that really gives a good example or a good answer, but that's how I'm thinking about this and, and trying to look at all facets instead of just giving one, uh, one size fits all answer. Yeah, I think, I mean, look, Amazon is not going to have this incredibly negative effect that everybody is saying it's going to have. I think it's having a relatively positive effect. Um, I mean, honestly, look, retail needed to change. I think that yeah. retail was stuck. I mean, America has more retail per square foot uh, per capita, uh, more retail square footage per capita than any other country in the world, right? right. And it's just it's it's not necessary. Um, so the re there's actually a massive amount of retail that's doing very well. I've bought several retail centers this year and am actively trying to buy more because uh, neighborhood retail, especially, is thriving. I mean, everybody is still going to go down to the, to the strip center on their way home. It has a nail salon, a dry cleaners, and a neighborhood bar. Like, that's always going to do really well. So, you know, I think it depends on the sector. Now, you know, of course, everybody thinks that, or not everybody, but people are saying retail is dying because you've got this massive segment of retail that is struggling. And really, it's, it's just big box. And it's also because they're yeah. so big, they occupy so much square footage that when one of those goes out, it's like, oh, my gosh. 100,000 square feet of retail is struggling in this one little area. Well, you got to keep in mind, it was only one tenant, right? So yeah. it, it's got to got to study it a little bit more than just listening to the headlines. I think, man, I think retail is doing well. I think office yeah. is doing very well. Amazon, uh, not Amazon. 
Oracle just announced 8,500 jobs and a new campus, a 65-acre campus near downtown Nashville. That's yep. massive. I mean, why would they do that? You know, at this point after COVID, if if office was dying, so I think uh, I think commercial real estate is going to continue to do well. Um, location is incredibly important; it always will be. Um, so that's kind of what I think about that. Logan, we're we're a little past an hour. If um, I mean, let's let's let you plug everything you've got going on right now. I mean, obviously you've, you're you're very active on LinkedIn. You've got the show. I mean, talk talk to us about everything else you've got going on and how people can find you, listen to you, reach out to you, whatever. Well, I appreciate that, Tyler. You know, the the whole idea for the new podcast and this quest to $100 million was to take the last three years of production that I've done and ask myself a question that Tim Ferriss has asked his, his, his self was, hey, how can I do this in way less time, right? Like if I only had five hours to work during the day, what would I do? And so I said, well, what is my goal? I'm a big goals guy, but I'm, I'm like, what is my goal for the year? Well, let me take the last three years and, and try to combine them into one, right? And so uh, that's what the Compression Podcast is all about. I'm talking about mental models, talking about deals, I'm talking about the Fredo Principle, all these things. But really, it's an opportunity for me to get an outsider's perspective and feedback on what I'm doing on a regular basis so I can pivot faster, make better decisions, and, and change my trajectory so I can continue to, on the, the success continuum. And so, you know, I'm, I'm proud to say that it's June – 15th right now and we're sitting at 67 million out of 100 uh, done and that's about a third brokerage and two-thirds acquisitions uh, for our firm uh, so I, I'm really excited to, to say that they, I think it's working and I think it's important to know that uh, I'm out here hustling working every single day trying to be uh, the best version of myself and I'm like you mentioned very active on LinkedIn our website is ftwinvestmentsllc.com primarily focused on workforce housing here in the Midwest and and uh, continuing to grow. I mean, I can't believe that our team is going to be at 11 people soon. I, I, you know, a year ago, it was it was like four of us. And uh, it, it's really rewarding experience to see that growth and and uh, use leverages like we talked about uh, earlier that Naval Ravikant has in his book. Love that. Logan, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. This was an awesome podcast. Appreciate you uh, sharing your knowledge and Man, honestly, sharing a big, hairy, audacious goal. Uh, yeah, well, Tyler, and looking forward to having some uh, Woodford Reserve with you very soon. Yeah, man, get get down to Nashville. Uh, thank you to everybody that uh, that joined us live and asked your questions. We really appreciate that. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe. If you're listening on the podcast, definitely give us a rating and a review, and we'll see you guys next week.